So this semester we're going to be we've been walking through Second Corinthians, and we just we're we're uh, you know basic people. We just go verse by verse through uh, scripture, and we've tried to do something different before. We've had students complain about it, so I was like, I like to go straight through the scripture anyway. So let's just do that. So we're just going to give you a taste of this Second uh, Corinthians chapter twelve. So if you've got a Bible, flip it open or open your phone, open your app or whatever you use. If you have a scroll. Or I'm not sure what you guys carry in here. Um, so uh, the reason we, were, we called this series this semester Your Best Life. The world is not shy about telling us how to live our life, are they? And so we need to dig into God's word. Jesus made it, made it pretty clear when he said in John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through you. We believe that. you believe that this morning? And since we believe that, we believe that our best life is doing things God's way. And Paul is dealing with the church that he doesn't really... You ever had that family member that, uh, you know, annoyed you to the fact, the point to where you're just like, oh, it's Thanksgiving. I've got to see them again. Don't say their name. That's not nice. But you probably got that family. That's the Corinthian church for Paul. They were just a headache for him. And for a variety of reasons. And we're going to get into one of those reasons today. But I'm super excited. Today's message is entitled The Sufficient Life. The Sufficient Life. So we're going to open up. And this is what we do in our nights of worship. We have students that share and give testimony. So Rachel's going to kind of open up with a story for us this morning. Hi, friends. So I'm Rachel. I was not singing today um, for many reasons. But <laughs> so when Andrew asked me to help with this message, I was really excited that he particularly used the word sufficient. And so if you have your Bibles open, I really like 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 10. And especially this morning, you know, one of our worship songs, we talked about testimonies. And I love to share my testimony. So I'm going to give you a little piece of that. And a large part of my testimony, I attribute a lot to my mom and a lot of her strength and perseverance. So when discussing my story alone, it's also not attributed to me, but to a lot of the work that she had. And if it were not for her strength or perseverance and the will she had in the face of opposition, I would not have the salvation and identity that I do have in Jesus Christ today. My mother, being the incredible woman that she is, did the one thing God, God required of her as a parent. She loved her children unconditionally, unconditionally and irrevocably, so much so that she left an abusive marriage to save myself and my three brothers. Coming home to the cornfields in Indiana, one of the first things she did is she went to church. Um, Never mind the fact that this is a single woman walking into buildings full of complete family units, but she walked in alone with four children toting along and head held high. It took years for us to find the right church and accepting one, one who didn't frown on a woman who was divorced. Not only was she divorced, but decided to raise her four kids by herself. And this was in a part to save us from the neglect and abuse we would have had with my father. And so despite the many disappointments we found visiting various churches, my mother held strong because she knew what an important task she had for spiritual formation and guidance in our lives. If she had given up on her faith, I probably 
And so I really love Paul. Paul's one of my favorite people in the Bible to talk about because he also loves spiritual formation and guidance, especially with the church in Corinth that we're going to talk about. And she is a teacher, a language arts teacher. So I was growing up looking at a lot of grammar and word choice. And we talk a lot about sufficient. And part of one of my things is I like to pray a lot for my brothers who decided to walk away from Christ for a while. Um, and one project I decided to take upon myself this year was I wrote a letter for my oldest brother, Jacob, um, for the day that he does come home to Christ. And in one whole paragraph, it just talks about our insufficiencies and unworthiness as just being human and the faults that we have. And despite all of our unworthiness and insufficiencies, God still loves us. And it says particular, particularly today that um, God says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And there's no shame in boasting about our weaknesses because it's in our weaknesses that we are found most strong. And so to end, I thought I would just read a little part that I wrote in this letter. And so, this is, his name is Jacob, in case you're curious. While you may think you aren't lost right now, Jacob, and life is starting to work itself out for you, I regret to tell you that it is not. Life is nothing without God. There are no absolutes, no moral compass, so why live at all? For the heck of the experience? You see, Jacob, in spite of all our unworthiness and insufficiencies, God still loves us and loves you in particular. In the doctrine of salvation, God loves you in spite of what is in you and what you have done, and you are the recipient of undeserved grace, undeserved love, and service. All that God has willingly given to you. And do you know the beauty of it all? You don't have to do anything in return. Just open up your arms and accept this gift of love that he has offered you. If only you knew how you are not defined by what this life has handed you, but rather by the blood and sacrifice Jesus Christ took to the cross for you. So take all of that pain and sorrow from this world and lay it at his feet because he's waiting for you with steadfast arms of life. Wow, that was the first time I've heard that. Um, so good. And I'm confident as you heard her tell her testimony, you can relate to that. Somebody say amen. amen. Whether in your family or personally, You've gone through times where you felt singled out, you felt like you didn't belong, and then God came along. Jesus came along and saved you and gave you a sufficient life. And so the jarring thing about the scripture that we're covering today is that it breaks all of our societal rules. We, we had our first uh, uh, message, we have two message prep meetings. This is our second one actually right here this morning because we're going to do this again on campus on the 15th. <laughs> um, so when we were really we were first talking, it was like this scripture breaks all of our cultural rules. Um, as a general rule, most of us in our culture, in our society, and even today, we don't like to be considered weak. And we spend most of our lives trying to convince other people that we're not weak, but that we're actually strong. Uh, this is why social media is so awful so many times. Um, we, we desire recognition from others. And if we fail at these two things, uh, someone thinking that we're weak, 
or like not having recognition from others, uh, we are the farthest thing we can get from our success in our culture today. Would you agree with that? So Paul is going to break all those rules. He does not care. And this is why the Bible is living and active. It just speaks right to us. So join us as we rethink these two things, strength and status. Okay, Brayton's going to read our first scripture. Get your Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. So this boasting will do no good, but I must go on. I will reluctantly tell about visions and revelations from the Lord. I was caught up to the third heaven 14 years ago. Whether I was in my body or out of my body, I don't know. Only God knows. Yes, only God knows whether I was in my body or outside of my body. But I do know that I was caught up to paradise and heard things so astounding that they cannot be expressed in words. Things no human is allowed to tell. That experience is worth boasting about, but I'm not going to do it. I will boast only about my weaknesses. If I wanted to boast, I would be no fool in doing so because I would be telling the truth. But I won't do it because I don't want anyone to give me credit beyond what they can see in my life or hear in my message, even though I have received such wonderful revelations from God. So to keep me from being proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from being proud. Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, my grace is all you need, my power works best in weakness. So now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults, hardships, persecutions, and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So when Paul says this, I must go on boasting. And if this first section is sufficiency from strength. Sufficiency from strength. That's the first part of our scripture. Verses 1 through 10. Sufficiency from strength. When Paul says, I must go on boasting, he is referring to the slew of sufferings he listed in chapter 11. Just you know, There's no chapter breaks in the original language. It's just one giant blob of text, Greek text. And then we went in there, no, we didn't, but somebody else did. Divided everything up so it's easier to study. But it, sometimes it, it makes us to where we don't really understand what's happening. So chapter 11, he lists tons of things that he endured as a missionary. <clears throat> and which included physical harm and seven dangers that surrounded him wherever he turned. So he is in a bragging war, essentially. Ever gotten in like a conversation with someone where you tell them a story, and they say, oh, that's nothing, listen to this. And then you're like, feel the need to say, well, well that's nothing, listen to, I don't even know what I'm going to say. I mean, maybe that's when you tell a lie. <laughs> um, but bragging wars can be difficult, and he found himself in a bragging war with these people called these super apostles. And he's going about it in the strangest way. When you get into a bragging war, the whole goal is to make sure that they know that you're better than them. And instead of doing that, uh, Paul just talks about his weaknesses. Okay? Side note. In this scripture, it makes me feel better about myself that he speaks about himself in the third person. I don't know if you noticed that. Who does that uh, when you're alone sometimes? You talk to yourself. Okay. Uh, no shame. No shame. I do it too. But from the vault, what he does is he brings out, in response to the super apostles, he brings out this thing, this vision that he received 14 years ago. 14 years ago, he brings this out. Isn't that fascinating? And as, as much as we know, this could have been the very first time that he shared this 
this vision with anybody. We don't, we don't see it anywhere else. But he says, 14 years ago, and he, he, he pulls out an experience that puts him in the company of the Old Testament, New Testament prophet, prophets. And when we lean in, we, we're excited to hear what he's going to say to these super apostles. What's he going to say? What's he going to say to say he's better than them? You know, how's he going to drive it home and prove them wrong? That he's more important than they are. And instead of doing that, he doesn't actually tell us what heaven is going to be like. He doesn't have, John hasn't written Revelation chapter 4, chapter 5, which is the glimpse as heaven has occurred. He has, don't look at it yet when we get home. But John does give us a glimpse of what heaven is like right now in, in Revelation 4 and 5. He doesn't have that available to him because John's going to write that in the 90s. Paul's going to die in the 60s. Uh, the original 60s, 90s, not, not the current. <clears throat> but many scholars believe that this may have been the first time he shared it. And instead of giving the details about the vision, he directs our attention to the thorn in his flesh. A messenger from Satan that tormented him. Three times pleading wasn't enough for God to lift it. And he needed to learn that his strength was not in his accomplishments. Don't you need to hear that tonight, this morning? That your strength is not in your accomplishments. That you are not valuable because of what you do. You're valuable because of who you are. Say that in your head to yourself right now. You need to go home and say it to yourself again later. I know I do. I get caught up in that. But this is something that could only be taught in these weaknesses. We don't like to hear that. We don't like God to say, the only way that you're going to learn this is through this thorn. The only way that you're going to learn this difficulty is through this difficult situation. We don't have time to debate what the thorn was. Don has all that figured out. He'll tell you after the service. So through this revelation, he, he learned, uh, this is a great quote, through this revelation, he learned of this uh, simultaneity of weakness and power. I love that quote from Colin Cruz. Our society really doesn't have a category for this, which is great news for us as Christians. We are really, we're just one of one in this space of weakness and God coming in and giving us power. So I think that, that, that really helps us as Christians when we witness to people. But there are many in our culture who are trying desperately to find their sufficiency in their own strength. This only leads to further frustration. The reason it frustrates us because of this bragging war and like trying to find sufficiency in your own strength, the reason it really bothers us when we really try it hard is because of limits. We can only push so long and so far before we fail. All of us have been there before. We can only go so far and so hard for so long before we fall. And our sufficiency instead as Christians is found in Christ's power resting on us. Amen? Amen. Let's continue in our scripture. Rachel's going to read verses 11 through 21. You have made me act like a fool. You ought to be writing commendations for me, for I am, for I am not at all inferior to these super apostles even though I am nothing at all. When I was with you, I certainly gave you proof that I am an apostle, for I patiently did, did many signs and wonders and miracles among you. The only thing I failed to do, which I do in other churches, was to become a financial burden to you. Please forgive me for this wrong. Now I am coming to you for the third time, and I will not be a burden to you. 
I don't want what you have, I want you. After all, children don't provide for their parents. Rather, parents provide for their children. I will gladly spend myself and all I have for you, even though it seems that the more I love you, the less you love me. Some of you admit I was not a burden to you, but others still think I was sneaky and took advantage of you by trickery. But how? Did any of the men I sent to you take advantage of you? When I urged Titus to visit you and sent for our other brother with him, did Titus take advantage of you? No, for we have the same spirit and walk in each other's steps, doing things the same way. Perhaps you think we're saying these things just to defend ourselves. No, we tell you this is Christ's, ser Christ's servants and with God is our witness. Everything we do, dear friends, is to strengthen you. For I am afraid that when I come, I won't like what I find, and you won't like my response. I am afraid that I will find quarreling, jealousy, anger, selfishness, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorderly behavior. Yes, I am afraid that when I come again, God will humble me in your presence. And I will be grieved, because many of you have not given up your old sins. You have not repented of your impurity, sexual immortality, and eagerness for lustful pleasure. So this scripture is kind of, you know, more inspiring without the second half. And when we first were studying this, I was like, I knew the direction we were going to go with it. And then you read the second half of the scripture, which is always really important because it's in the same voice and the same breath. And it's harder to deal with. I think that's what the Bible does to us. We think that it's easy, cut and dry, no problem. And then we start chewing on it a little bit. We realize it's going to challenge us a little bit more than we want to be challenged. Thank you, Jesus. So the first thing we talked about is sufficiency from strength. The second part is called the sufficiency from status. And according to Paul, only a fool gets into a bragging war to solidify status. There is something deep inside all of us that wants to be noticed. Look at me, look at me, look at me. I'm important. Um, some people, when you talk to me, you're like, I already think you're important. You don't have to keep telling me you're great. I want to say that. But, but we want others to look at us and say, wow. They are successful. Look at their kids. Look at their grandkids. Look at their future. You know, look at their car. Look at their house. Or whatever we're wanting people to say about us. Um, I wish I was more like them. We want others to know that we have it together and that we deserve any elevation that comes our way. <clears throat> Another side note. So in the first scripture, he's talking about himself in third person, which makes me relate to Paul. Second scripture, he uses sarcasm. Did you guys get that? He says, forgive me this wrong. <laughs> Super apostles were juicing this church for money. And Paul was like, I'm going to work as a day laborer. They hated that. They hated that he was a day laborer. They wanted an official super apostle that needed financial support that they could take all the credit for his success. But Paul says he doesn't want benefit from their thriving Corinthian economy. This place was killing it economically. They had ports on both sides of Corinth in southern Greece that they could receive goods, import, export, import, export, import, export. They just killed it. And, and Paul, he's not going to benefit from their thriving economy. He knew it would be a distraction from this church. He says in the scripture, Rachel read it really well. What I want is not your possessions, but you. And you get the feeling that the super apostles were milking them for financial support in Corinth. But 
Paul chose to be a day laborer. So what he did by being a day laborer, by being a leather worker or a tent maker, whatever you feel like that Greek translation is, but it was that he worked with leather. By working with leather, he put himself in the working class economy, not in the socially elite. Okay, he did that on purpose so that he could relate to the people that were working hard every single day, not the elite. And they hated that. That's one of the reasons that they didn't like Paul a lot of the times, because he just was unimpressive to them. Uh, when he came to visit them, they were just very, very unimpressed with him. But he, he did an anti-status move by being a day laborer. And everything we do, dear friends, he says, is for your strengthening. It shows his pure intentions. And the way Paul ends this chapter makes so much sense we remember the occasion for Paul writing this letter. Back in chapter 1, verse 23, we see that he was supposed to make a, a third in-person visit to Corinth. He was going to go up to Macedonia, to the Philippians, that area, and he was going to come back down to the Corinthian church and then go back to Jerusalem. He was so upset when he left. He's like, in 123, he says, I am I'm not coming back down to spare you. Instead, I'm going to write this letter. That's how 2 Corinthians was written. That's the context of how it was written. He worried for this church. I mean, he was worried. Uh, he was losing sleep for this church. When we get infatuated with awarding status to ourselves or, or to others, what we do is we leave the door open for all kinds of evil. And what he does is he lists eight new sins that he's really worried that they're going to fall into. And he lists three old sins that he saw when he was there the last time that he was worried that they were still not repented of. So there's 11 sins that are keeping him up at night. And there are, are, are many around who are jockeying for positions to gain status that will awe those around them. Moving up is the key. I've even heard of people getting fired because they didn't have aspirations of moving up to their position that's above them. It's, it, I won't go into football reference, but it's kind of like the offensive coordinator for the Patriots when he tried to be a head coach for the Broncos. Because everybody was telling him he had to be a head coach. We, we just feel like we have to move up or we won't be successful. And we will never get to the point where we can be honored enough to satisfy that desire. And so what happens when we have the desire for status, uh, desire for strength brings limits. Desire for status brings pressure. Because once you perform once, once you buy that first car, once you buy those first shoes, once you get that first kid or whatever, then it becomes the pressure mounts for, to one-up yourself for status. May we not seek sufficiency by the way of status. Instead, may we attribute high status to Jesus alone. Our sufficiency is to be found in lifting Jesus high. That's your sufficiency. He has the status. He is exalted, the name above all names. If everybody forgets about who we are, that does not matter. I hope you forget who I am. But I hope you don't remember what we were going through in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Right? Right now, Brady's going to share his story uh, about his internship and some of the things that God taught him through that. I think I'm going to relate to the passage.
Yeah, so um, right now I'm a senior at IUPUI and I'm studying finance and in hopes of becoming a financial advisor in the next couple of years. And while I was interning over the summer at a firm back in Evansville, which is where I'm from, um, we would drive to our regional headquarters in Owensboro, Kentucky every Monday morning and deal with the president of the entire um, Kentucky region um, to coordinate our training and to get us plugged into people. And in the first two weeks, I think it was the second Monday I was over there, he gave me this book. It's called Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. And every single advisor I talked to in the company asking them for reading material to learn a little bit about the industry, this is the book that they recommended. So obviously I got pretty excited that they were giving me basically the cheat code for their position right off the bat and um, delved into it. And what I found really interesting about this book is the focus of the book. It wasn't really even on money per se or advising or coaching or anything like that. It was more of a lifestyle book. And what was really intriguing to me is chapters two and three, what they were titled. And chapter two was chapter was titled Desire, and chapter three was titled Faith. And you hear that and you think it's a finance book, and it's a little odd that you hear the terms desire and faith in a book about money. Um, and when you get to reading about it, you would think that it was straight out of the Bible, honestly. Um, let me read you a couple lines from it. Faith is the eternal elixir which gives life, power, and action to the impulse of thought. Faith is the starting point of all accumulation of anything valuable. Faith is the basis of all miracles and mysteries that cannot be analyzed by the rules of science. Faith is the only known antidote to failure. And you think about that, and you think, I, that sounds familiar. Well, that's pretty much what Jesus preaches to us is that faith in him is the source for all of our success. And it is all good and dandy until you realize where these people are positioning their faith. All the momentum is good, all the direction is good, and all their desire for success in theory is good, but the direction is poor. When you read into chapter 2, you see that it says, you may complain that it is impossible for you to see yourself in possession of money before you actually have it. Here's where having a burning desire will come to your aid. If you truly desire money so keenly that your desire is an obsession, you will have no difficulty in convincing yourself that you will acquire it. The object is to want money and to become so determined to have it that you convince yourself you will have it. Only those who become money conscious ever accumulate riches. And... As we go through in 2 Corinthians, that is the complete opposite of what Paul just told us. But it is exactly right to what we are told by everyone else around us as soon as we walk out of this building. Um, even talking to these advisors who would show up in their quarter million dollar cars, um, wearing about 50 grand worth of clothing, and coming up and talking about all the success they've had in life helping other people you get the feeling that it's much more about themselves than what they actually did for other people. And as Andrew alluded to, um, Corinth in those days was a raging metropolis of trade. It Pretty much everyone who traded throughout the Mediterranean Sea went through that port. 
and its wealth rivaled that of even Athens, the capital of Greece. And to me, that reminded me, it hit me actually last night, that that reminds me a lot of Indianapolis. In my international finance course that I took about a year ago, uh, one of the first points that was made um, to relate us to the class was that Indianapolis is often ranked in the top five um, highest international traffic areas in the United States, and more often than not is ranked number one. And that just kind of hit me as, I mean, if you look around the city, we've got a lot of, I think, the same problems culturally that the Corinthians had, and I think Paul is talking to us just as much as he is talking to the Corinthians. And as I went throughout this summer in my internship, I had to stop that book about halfway through because it was very easy for me to cling on to that thought of, I, I need more money because I need to um, have some status accumulation in relation to all these advisors who are making bank doing their job and who are showing up to their client meetings basically showing off everything they've accomplished right when they step in the door just because of the net value of what they bring physically to the table. And it just kind of, kind of reflected on, as I was reflecting on this passage, this idea that we're all dealing with the same sins that Paul is chastising this church for having problems with 2,000 years ago. Another problem that the Corinthian church had was um, being sexually immoral. And they had that problem we saw in 1 Corinthians when we were reading that. And they hadn't fixed it even before 2 Corinthians. And that's part of the reason why Paul wrote the letter and didn't actually come to the church because he was so frustrated that they ignored that problem. And at the same time, they were disunified because they were bickering with each other and couldn't come together unified as a church. And I kind of realized that this idea of having strength and status, I mean... As far as status, it, we see every single popular person that we look up to and envy, we don't really look up to them, I don't think, for at least the culture does it as far as like what they actually talk about in their interviews and what they actually subscribe to as far as a lifestyle. We look up to them because they've got hundreds of millions of followers on social media or they've got a brand that's making them big bucks. And they can get pretty much anything they want. And the difference being is that the only thing they can't get and that money can't buy them and that sex can't buy them and that arguing and being winning arguments can't buy them is a fulfilled life and a sufficient life. There's always that hole that they have that they keep trying to dump money in and pleasure in and they are never able to fill it. And... That's really, I think, the core of what Paul's getting at here is he's contrasting that so hard with the, like, I've got a messenger from Satan after me, torturing me and tormenting me, telling me that I am, that I basically shouldn't boast about anything I've done, and that has made me fulfilled because in my weakness I'm struggling because that glorifies God. And it's the complete opposite. He's living with the day-to-day -day workers. He's not trying to, again, with that sarcasm we touched on earlier, the, I don't want to be a financial burden to you. It, he wouldn't have been a financial burden at all. They had way more money than they had any good to use with. And it's 
pretty much just this referendum on the idea of the principle of like everything that we would normally think that's human instinct of like in college we get this degree we get this first job when when we're older in age we have our kids and grandkids that we're proud of we have this estate that we've accomplished we've retired we've, we've gotten good with our done good with our money we have all these friendships we have this church that, that supports us and it's easy to almost self-implode on the idea of this is what i've done and not reflect on this is god's blessing for us and um it just really hit me like that and just wanted to share that and as i move into my career it's something for me to remember of um being more humbled at the idea of not necessarily walk, walking in with the most expensive clothing and driving up in the most expensive car, but this idea of like sitting down with people and actually being more focused on the principle and the lifestyle and the message of God than necessarily what I have and what's attached to my name. Wow. <clears throat> Can you imagine if you came into a financial uh, planning appointment and said, uh, I don't want your possessions, I want you. Um, that just doesn't sound right, but maybe that's how we should be. So just a few things as we uh, wrap up. Um, number one, going back into the scripture to apply to our lives. Number one, just admit your limits. Admit your limits today. Depending on your own strength will only frustrate you. Okay? Admit those limits. That's probably the first thing that has to happen for anybody to become a Christian. Genuinely become a Christian. We have to say, I have limits. I have sin. I have shame. I can't make it through without Christ. Number two, alleviate the pressure. Alleviate the pressure. Embarking on a quest for high status creates pressure to perform. You don't have to. That's that's not necessary. You don't have to be famous. Right? For the longest time, I used to feel so sorry for my parents because they've lived in the same town of 600 people their entire lives. They're in their 60s. Same small church, same small town. You know, same friends, same family members, over and over, you know. Same air conditioning unit for, since the <laughs> 1970s. Same furnace, you know. I used to feel sorry for them. Now I, I shouldn't envy them, but I, I want to be like them, right? Because they don't feel any of that pressure. That's self-imposed. All right, enough about that. Number three, tell Jesus he's enough. Uh, this is kind of going back to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. This is my wife's favorite scripture. Um, such is the confidence that we have toward God through Christ, not that we are adequate in ourselves, so as to consider anything as having come from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. What would happen? What would happen to all of us in this room if we dedicated ourselves to the sufficient life or strength and status, God's like, give that to me. I'm going to give you something so much better. Um, 
I think this is what would happen. I think we would be more balanced as human beings. We wouldn't overcorrect either way. I think we would see the need to pray and read the Bible. I mean, obviously, if God is our sufficiency, how can we not pray? How can we not want to hear his voice on a daily basis? I think we would see the need to be in community with other Christians, which you guys are doing a great job of that today. We would start to uh, get the attention of those who are outside of following Jesus, wondering why we seem so free. I think we would be happier. I think all these things we're searching after are not going to make us happy. I think we would be more effective for the long haul. And uh, so I'm going to pray, and we're going to kind of go into a song of invitation. And uh, I'm really excited to come into this time to respond to what God has done. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this morning. We thank you, God, that you have given us everything we need in Christ Jesus. I pray, God, that you would please just help us at this time stay focused on uh, you being sufficient, being all that we need. Father, we've tried. Like I said, we've tried to do things our own way. We have tried to uh, try harder. We've tried to impress other people. It's just fool's gold. We want the real thing. So God, help us as we come to this time of invitation. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.